0: Today we close our sermon series entitled A Living Hope, our scripture study of 1 Peter. You may not have realized what we've done over here in the last seven weeks with this book. We've actually read every single word of this letter and we've walked through it. That's a pretty cool thing. That's significant to me. And I hope it encourages you towards scripture study in your own personal time. There's no way in seven weeks that we could dive into everything that this book has for us or parse out words or really ponder them. That's up to you to do in your own time at home. We really believe that one of the primary ways for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ is to meet him daily in the word by reading, journaling our thoughts, questioning things that don't make sense to us, and in many cases, reading with other people as well. We will continue in the scriptures this summer, as always, and we're going to kick off a new sermon series entitled, Question and Answer. That'll be our summer sermon series. We're going to take a look, not at the questions that we have for God, but the questions that God has for us. So often, we're focused on our questions, God, why this, why that, and we miss them many times throughout scripture in which God asks us questions. We'll have some additional resources available to you throughout the sermon series so that you can be encouraged to enter into God's word throughout the week and to meet with Jesus in a significant way. That new sermon series is going to start on June 12th, but next week we would like to invite you to a special worship service where we will spend the morning talking about this wonderful sanctuary that we are in. Many of you have been part of some of the preliminary discussions about how we might update this sanctuary space to make it a more functional space for years to come. Through our conversations with the congregation and as a leadership council and as a staff, we've become aware of the need to take a step back for a little bit. We want to put aside the details of what this might look like and how things might change in here. And instead, we want to share with you the heart behind the conversations that got us to this point, our heart behind the sanctuary. And how this project uh, that is in its infant stages helps us to accomplish our mission statement of flourishing together in Jesus Christ. It is an important Sunday, and I hope that you'll all make every effort to join us as we give you a reminder of our mission statement. We have some foundational conversations together, and of course, we gather around the table for the Lord's Supper. So now that you know the schedule going forward, we're going to get at the work at hand today, which is diving in To 1st Peter chapter 5 so let me pray as we begin Lord may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight O Lord our rock and our Redeemer amen so we began this series talking about a living hope back in chapter 1 Peter says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is a wonderful theme for us to continue to study. But my guess is that some of you who have been around the last seven weeks might have forgotten all about hope in the last few weeks. I asked the staff this week, what really stuck out to them uh, in this sermon series? What, what, some, what are some of the takeaways? And the word suffering came up more than hope did. So, on the whole, is 1 Peter more about hope or is it more about suffering? Did we just pick the nice word at the beginning of the letter because that, it, that would draw more people in than saying this is a sermon series about suffering? Well, chapter 5 starts with a strong focus on suffering. Peter starts, Now as an elder myself, a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend to the flock of God that is in your charge. It may seem that Peter here begins his closing remarks in this letter from the vantage point of suffering rather than hope, but all is not as it seems. In my study this week, I got really tripped up Almost immediately over that second clause there, myself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Think about that for a second. As I ponder this phrase, I become more and more frustrated because that's a lie, right? That's a lie. The Gospels tell us quite clearly that Peter was not a witness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was dying on the cross at the place of his greatest suffering, Peter was nowhere to be found because he had abandoned his Lord and Savior. Now maybe Peter would justify this by saying that he witnessed some of the sufferings of Christ in a way that his readers had not, which would be true. He actually did see Jesus in terrible grief. Peter could never forget that he saw his Lord Jesus Christ in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he was one of the three disciples who failed to keep watch with their Lord for even an hour, and they fell asleep within a stone's throw of the place where it was written that Jesus was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Peter remembered that when his master, Jesus, rose from prayer, he said, my betrayer is at hand, and he was there, and he saw the traitor Judas kiss the cheek of the one who still called him friend. Peter was an eyewitness of our Lord being hurried away to the house of Annas where he underwent his preliminary examination and he remembered him being struck and he could recall how he was charged with blasphemy and he was an eyewitness about how when that first examination was over he was bound and he was sent to Caiaphas the high priest. Yes, Peter witnessed these sufferings of Jesus, but it seems disingenuous to call yourself a witness to the suffering of Jesus Christ when you fled like Peter did. As Peter wrote this, he had to be thinking of that fateful night when he himself fled, when he was warming himself by the fire and he did exactly what Jesus said that he was going to do. From Luke chapter 22, Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man was also with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else said on seeing him, You are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And then about an hour later, another kept insisting, Surely this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And at that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine that. Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Peter had to be thinking of that gaze from Jesus before he wrote these words, right? That gaze that said, Peter, I knew you were going to fail me, and you did. You denied me. You deserted me. It takes a lot of guts to call yourself a witness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ when you know in your heart that you deserted the most important person in your life. And even more guts to set yourself up as an example for the church and tell them how they ought to live when everybody knows that you denied Jesus and you ran and that you fled and that you left him alone in his, in his greatest time of suffering. Some of you know that one of my greatest spiritual heroes is this man, A great hero of the faith, the pastor Fred Rogers, known to several generations of children and adults as the face of Mr. Rogers neighborhood. I recently read a book by Tim Madigan, who's an award-winning newspaper journalist, who came across Fred Rogers, their paths crossed, when he was tasked to write a biography column on Mr. Rogers. Madigan uses this book to talk about his own faith background. He grew up in a nominal Catholic tradition, and Fred Rogers' overt faith in Jesus was peculiarly attractive to Tim. He visited Pittsburgh to see Fred Rogers in action at his studio, and then he went to go write his column, and they struck up a friendship, and Fred continued to pursue Tim Madigan via letters and phone calls with Friendship always going out of his way almost to a ridiculous degree to encourage him. Through his friendship with Fred Rogers, Tim Madigan came to realize that he had always been drawn to older men who were caring older men, and he began to identify his own woundedness around his own father, a father who chose shame instead of grace and silence instead of affirmation. Madigan writes, I came to understand this wound as a chronic depression that had afflicted our family for generations, and it was at the core of the despair that threatened to consume me. My journals from that time describe the life of a man who was preoccupied with and nearly overwhelmed by his own suffering. At the same time, I was receiving more awards and accolades than ever, but the success And recognition that I had pursued for decades, which I had sought as an antidote for my shame and insecurity, did nothing to alleviate my inner torment. And if anything, it made it worse. I felt like a fraud. No matter how much recognition came my way, I still felt like that weak kid with a disapproving father. He continued to work hard at his craft, to pray for relief, to meet with a therapist, to take meds. But he was still hopeless and anxiety-ridden with a marriage that was crumbling and a life that was in flux. So he decided to do something daring. As he puts it, whether it was an act of inspiration, desperation, or a combination of the two, I will never be sure. But I decided to write my friend in Pittsburgh and tell him about the difficult truth of my life, which he published then in his book. And it is a letter with achingly vivid emotion. He identifies the chief wound of his life to his friend, Mr. Rogers, how it's marred him, how he ran from it. And then he ends his letter by saying, I need to ask you a question. Fred, will you be proud of me? It would mean a great deal if you would. Would you like to know Fred's response? It's right there. Let me read it. Dear Tim, the answer to your question is, yes, a resounding yes. I will be proud of you. I am proud of you. I have been proud of you since we first met. I'm deeply touched that you would offer so much of yourself from, to me, and I look forward to knowing all that you would care to share in the future. Nothing you could tell me could change my yes for you. Please remember that. I wonder if you realize how special you really are. Your place in this life is unique, absolutely unique. I feel blessed to be one of your friends. Only God can arrange such a mutually trusting friendship. For sure, for sure, yes, Tim, yes, love, Fred. Can't you just hear him saying that? I share this letter and this story because I think it models what our text is actually all about today. This text is about the living hope that comes from living redeemed. What was Peter's point of deepest pain? Don't you think it had to be the denial of Jesus Christ? The one that he had pledged his very life to? Don't you think that this is what he went to bed thinking about every night? Don't you think that this was the great wound of his life, his great shortcoming? Don't you think that not being a witness to the death and suffering of Jesus Christ was his biggest loss in life, his biggest wound, his biggest shortcoming? So, how then? does he have the nerve to call himself a witness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ? I think I know how. John 21. After Jesus' resurrection, he meets Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he asks him a few questions. Let me read it for you. Look at this text. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after he said this, he said, follow me. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's meeting Peter at the point of his woundedness. And he's giving Peter an opportunity for a fresh start. He's asking, Do you love me more than these fish, these friends, this lake, this world? Do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than anything? And Peter says, Yes, but Jesus doesn't just ask once, he asks three times. And that's an echo of Peter's three denials of Jesus in the courtyard around the fire. He's around a fire here too, it's a breakfast fire with a chance to redeem himself. And each time that Peter affirms his love for Jesus, Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And then he closes by saying, this is the path. Uh, This path is going to be one of suffering, and it's going to cause you to die for me, but that's going to give God glory, so follow me. This is Peter's great moment of decision. Far more important than his initial shortcoming in Jerusalem, In Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong, she makes this statement. You either walk into your story and own your truth, or you live outside of your story hustling for your worthiness. Read it again. You either walk into your story and you own your truth, or you live outside your story hustling for your worthiness. Owning your story. That's what Tim Madigan did, and it saved his life. And here is Peter faced with the same decision. Peter could have recognized what Jesus was doing here with these three questions and gone, well, okay, Jesus, let me give you a little commentary. I know it seems like I denied you three times, but it wasn't quite, I didn't mean it. It wasn't, I, I didn't know what was going on. Or he could have said, Jesus, I'm such a screw up. I can't even answer that. I can't even look at you. I can't even stand with you. I'm such a screw up. I can't do this. I can't do this. But Peter didn't do that. He owned his story and the truth of his woundedness, and in that, he found redemption. So let's look back at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. I'm going to read it again, see if you pick out anything different this time. Now as an elder myself and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend to the flock of God that is in your charge. Why does Peter call himself a witness to the sufferings of Christ? I think it's to demonstrate that restoration, even from grievous sin, is possible with Christ. And thus, he encourages the church elders toward a humble willingness to be penitent for sin rather than a hypocritical pride and unwillingness to admit wrong. I think it's Peter owning his story. The fact that Peter is also a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed shows the full restoration from sin that is available through Jesus. So with a redeemed and humble spirit, Peter exhorts the elders to tend the flock that's in their charge. Interestingly enough, that verb that Peter uses is the exact same one that Jesus spoke to him when he said, Peter, tend my sheep. You see, when we read this carefully, we see that Peter is closing his letter not with just words to the elders, but with testimony, with autobiography, with owning his story. Because ultimately, Peter's story is the story of the church. If the church's story isn't one of redemption, then we've completely missed Jesus. Because this is what he's always doing, just as he did for Peter. So I ask you this morning, what, what's your woundedness? What's your shortcomings? What is it in your life that's in need of Jesus' redemption? What have you been carrying around for way, way too long? What has caused you to hustle for your worthiness rather than own your story and your own truth? Is it a sin that eats at you? Is it shortcomings that you're constantly aware of? Is it wrong that's been done to you by others, maybe your family of origin, generational sins that you haven't tended to and they've taken a hold of you? I have two bits of good news as you think about that question. The first bit of good news is this. Peter uses the rest of this chapter to show you how you can start on a path of owning your story. He walks through what I think is a fourfold step to the redemption process I want to just quickly go through it for you the first step comes in verse six humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you in due time humility humility that's the the first step in owning your story moving from hopeless to hopeful it takes humility to name a wound to name shortcomings to write that letter to have that conversation, to see that counselor, to journal that emotion. We have to have enough humility to own our stories, our sins, our wounds, but humility is always the first step in the redemption process. Peter answered Jesus' questions on the side of the Sea of Galilee with humility rather than, defen- rather than being defensive or meeting it with some sort of drama. And so can we. Then in verse 7, the second thing, once you've humbled yourself, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What do you do with your emotions, your sadness, your woundedness, your anxiety? Peter says, cast those things. Drop them, cast them, throw them upon God because he cares for you. Can you think of anything more productive to do with the anxiety in our lives than to cast them upon God who cares for us? Because I can't. Your anxieties will eat you up, and they will ruin you. They they threatened to do that to Peter. They threatened to do that to Tim Madigan. But they found a caring place to cast those anxieties, and that was the turning point in their redemption stories. The third piece of redemption comes in verses 8 and 9. The devil prowls on the newly redeemed like a lion, seeking to discourage, bring down, and injure. I believe this with all my heart because I've experienced it in my own life. What does Peter say to do? Resist the devil. Don't give in to discouragement and lies. Those are surely not from God. For me, this means recognizing the lies that I've begun to believe and naming them out loud. God, I refuse to give in to this. I refuse to live into these lies. I won't give the enemy that satisfaction. And God, I choose your truth instead. Lastly, in verse 10, Peter tells his readers to suffer for a while. <laughs> this redemption isn't going to fix everything immediately. It's going to take time. But that time of struggle and suffering is worth it because the God of all grace who has called you, called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. Peter is a trustworthy voice to walk us through this process because he surely went through each of these, being humbled by his shortcomings, casting his anxieties upon a savior who cares for him, resisting the discouraging themes of the devil, and suffering with hope for a future that God has firmly in his care This four-step model is good news for us as we struggle to own our own stories and to seek Christ's redemption. But remember, I said there was actually a second piece of good news, more good news, and I'll end with this. The second piece of good news is that Jesus Christ never, ever, ever stops pursuing you because he wants to redeem you. It's what he does. He pursued Peter. He used Mr. Rogers, of all people, to pursue Tim Madigan. He will continue to pursue you, not with shame and guilt, but with love and pride. Tim Madigan points out in his book that Fred Rogers, wrote. He, he, they wrote lots of letters back and forth after that significant letter, and every subsequent letter or email that Fred sent to Tim was signed with four letters, I-P-O-Y, I'm proud of you. That's the name of his book. It became the dominant theme of Tim Madigan's life, a constant reminder that his story was one of redemption. I think God continues to pursue us with the words that speak to our redemption, those unique words that we most need to hear. That's how Jesus pursues our woundedness, persistently and lovingly, so that we don't have to hustle for our worthiness anymore because we have in him a living hope, a hope that he himself will indeed restore and support and strengthen and establish you. Should you take the bold step of owning your own story and humbly casting your anxiety upon him, I truly believe that he will instill the same living hope in you that he did in Peter, one that turned him from a notorious screw-up into a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ and one who shares in his glory. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the ways in which you have redeemed me. And I'm mindful of these friends who have gathered here with me this day and the opportunities that we have to own our stories to begin a process of redemption to humbly come before you and say here's what I bring here's my pain here's what I need and Lord we rest in the hope that you are a redeeming God that you continue to pursue us and come after us so Lord we Thank you for the redemption story of Peter and how his story is our story. May we be a church that lives redeemed in you because, Lord, that is what you do, and that is who you are, and we hear the call to follow you.